Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation, pending nonprofit with the IRS. Uh, today, I have a returning guest, Dr. Bill Miller, Jr. Uh, spoken to him a number of times, and he and I talk actually pretty regularly. He's uh, very, very savvy, very interesting ideas about biology and evolution, et cetera. So I wanted to have him back because a topic that is passionate to him is uh, what what do our cells tell us about ourselves, our own existence, our own biology? And now it's a Seems strange at first, but we're going to get into the details. So, Bill, thanks for coming. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on. Yeah. So what did you mean, first of all, when you say uh, cells can tell us something about ourselves? What does that mean? It means that we that modern science has completely reframed the way we look at cells. We now know that our cells are responsive, problem-solving, and intelligent. And we're going to talk about all those things. And from that base from this essential base that's different from just even two decades ago, there, there are a number of lessons that our cells can teach us. They provide us insight about ourselves. And the, there are multiple lessons that we can derive from them. They're all based within science. Uh, none of this is just theoretical. These are just basic scientific findings that, that are being applied uh, in, in a, an unusual manner. And what we learned by studying the cell in detail, it's magnif- their magnificent complexities, is that there are essential rules of engagement that extend across all biological sim- systems. 
and that they can provide us with an insight into how do we can conduct our lives, thoughts about how societies should live together collectively. And they offer through their engineering capacities, through their intelligent problem-solving interactions, they offer us new ways of looking at our own health and new, new pathways to enhancing our well-being and improving our lives. Well, let's, let's break that down. What, what does that mean? Like what, what can cells teach us about working together versus just killing each other or fighting endlessly? You know, let's, let's start with that. Well, they have specific rules of engagement that we're going to talk about in a minute, and uh, we're going to call them the four C's. And uh, the four C's are those uh, specific things that cells do together to form the living compact that they do that make us the seamless beings. We are cellular beings. No matter what we think about ourselves, we are cellular beings. And the most important thing, that the way I'd like us to start talking about this, Rich, is that the major difference from the past to the present is that none of ourselves, just like our, just like we are ourselves, are, are machines. And I'm insisting that we think about this for a minute because biology was framed up until just about two decades ago into the concept that we're living machines. And in fact, many, many biologists still right, believe yeah. that. Oh, yeah, and, I hear it all the time. Yep. Yeah, I know. And here's it, it's shocking when you can go to the literature and look at the, at the enormous amount of basic science that teaches us that our cells are intelligent. Let me explain first, because it's just interesting to me. How did the concept that, that living things are machine become so fashionable? Well, it actually goes back to the 16th and 17th centuries. There was a, a point in time when European royalty got fascinated with very elaborate mechanical contrivance. So there were a terrific uh, craftsmen that could make uh, forms of animated dolls. And they would parade that they would actually travel them from, from European court to court and give a show. And these were highly complicated machines that were like animated dolls. They could read, they could write, they could perform music, they could do a drawing, they could, they could work together in unison in, in a sort of a tableau. There were, uh, if you think of a cuckoo clock where they, you can have a little bit of coordinated action, think of something that's immensely more, more elaborate. These things were so remarkable and so unlike anything else that had been seen before that philosophers like Rene Descartes came to the conclusion that maybe we should just regard everything that's living as some kind of form of a complex machine. But now we know that that concept of the, of the living machine is entirely misplaced. And here's why. Every single cell is intelligent. Every single cell of your body is intelligent in mind. What does that mean at, at the level of a cell? It's not intelligence like we have. You know, cells aren't contacting their, each other for Tinder dates, but they have cells, they have intelligences that matter in their own scope. They can learn. They have memory. Here's a remarkable thing. There's the, the single cell at amoeba can solve a complex maze. It has no brain. It doesn't even have any neurons, but because of the wonderful complexity of cells that we don't even understand exactly how they are, cognitive is the word, or how they, how they know that they exist at some level, not like the way we know we exist, but at their level, it's, it changes everything knowing that that's a fact. Take the, there are cells in our body, specific immune cells called T cells. These are the scavenger cells that, that, that circulate through the bloodstream. And if you have a pathogenic bacterium, 
that's invaded your bloodstream, they go after them. But here's the remarkable thing. They are highly intelligent in their own way, and they can solve what's called the traveling salesman problem. That is, traveling salesmen would need to figure out the most efficient way, the best way to use their time, the most efficient mode of travel to get from one place to another in all of the routes. And it, it's not an easy problem. T-cells. Yeah, like I guess if you're if you're going to deliver packages to 50 locations and you're a UPS driver, like you said, yeah. what's the most efficient way to route your pickups and drop-offs? Yeah, Amazon Prime, FedEx, they have very sophisticated computer algorithms that just do it and they block it into the GPS, GPS system for the drivers and it gets done. T-cells can solve that problem in a more limited scope necessarily, but they can solve that problem. So what are cells... What, where is the intelligence of, the, of cells directed? They merely want to uphold themselves. They don't have extraordinary aims. They don't have ambitions. They just want to uphold themselves. And how do they do that? They solve problems, and which means, and this is a very important point, they can use information. They can communicate it deliberately, deliberately for, between themselves, cell-cell communication. This use of information is really important because it means that it gets measured. And why does this matter to us? Why, why does this cellular intelligence matter to us? Because as we're going to discuss together, that intelligence links to all the connections that let, allow us to be us, that further can, that connect us to the planet, and I'll explain exactly that, why that is, and they even connect us into the cosmos. And what I'm going to talk about is not some kind of new age spiritual. We're going to talk about a discreetly scientific explanation about why you leave a permanent mark on the planet, why your being here matters, why you have a living purpose, even though you don't even sense that you do, and how, even more extraordinarily, it, it actually links beyond the planet into the cosmos. So we're going to explain exactly why that is. Quick yes, question sir. here. When you say that, um, well, I don't know how you put it exactly, but um, we have a cellular existence. I mean, what, what, what does that mean? As well, opposed it, to me saying, I'm... I'm me, I'm rich, I'm one person. That's what I feel like instead of trillions of different things. How should I think instead differently? Well, that's a great question. Let me, let me explain it directly. Because each cell is intelligent, they understand that they have to appraise information. They have to measure it. They measure it because me that the information that they need to use is, uh, the term is ambiguous. It's uncertain. It's imprecise. It, it doesn't have exactness. Computers interact with each other and the data streams that they send back and forth to each other have exactness. There's great precision. There's no doubt inside a computer. It just processes the information. So when two computers link together, there's no, uh, unless there's a power failure or some kind of glitch in the major program, there's no degradation of that information. For living things though, living things get all their information and they have to cross cellular membranes, or they use molecules that can degrade over time or as they're transported so that the, the, the information that any intelligent cell has is limited. How do cells react? They measure together. It's the wisdom of crowds. And what does that become? The thing you're asking me, multicellularity. So cells measure together. They communicate together. That's a form of engineering. That engineering permits the, the aggregation of cells together to work together cohesively. Those are the tissues, the tissue ecologies that enable us to be what we are. Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Which is holobionics. We are vast connections, all of these intelligent cells that work together so seamlessly that we think we're one thing. So, Rich, when I look in the mirror and I'm looking at my reflection, well, the first thing I think of is George Clooney, eat your heart out. What a handsome guy. Actually, he has nothing to fear from. But I look at myself and I think I'm one thing, but that's not really the way it is. What I am, which I cannot see, are the incalculable connections that each of the trillions and trillions of cells that make me up together form this seamless oneness that I am. And even more importantly, those cells in this, this thing called the holobiont, which is a combined life form between microbes and our own personal type of cells. We have a special name, eukaryotic cells, but these combine together to make the me that I am and the you that you are. And even more importantly, these, all of these connections, which are dependent upon energy transfers and bioactive molecules, also depend on elementary quantum processes. And we'll talk about that because this explains why the, that your experience here on the planet can even connect beyond the planet into the cosmos itself, even across space and time. Well, all right. So should someone listening think of themselves as a city? Like, could you yeah. think of your body as Philadelphia with all the people and goods moving and trucks and, you know, governance and all that stuff? Absolutely. I, I think you caught it just quite correctly. We see ourselves as a material thing. It's natural. I mean, what else can we do? We have to, we live in our own construct and we, we see ourselves as materiality. And yes, it's true. We are material, but what we don't see is that the materiality that we can look at and, and actually appraise with our own eyes really reflects action. We are an incredible connectome. And even more importantly, we're, we are connected unseen by information, an information interactome. And it is, th think of it this way. We think of individuals as nouns, like a chair or Bill Miller looks like, like a material object. But this is the wrong way to think about it. You have to really think of us as verbs. We are the connections, and it is the connections that make the living form. It's a very, very different way of thinking, and it does take some getting used to. But once you understand that you are, in effect, the connection, so the, the city of Philadelphia is populated by people, and it has material things like buildings and highways and cars and buses, but it doesn't, there's, there's no life in that description. What the, the life comes from the simultaneous interactions that express outward over time. So the, well, it's the, like it's like saying I am, you know, like I, I'm picturing one of those cheesy commercials. I am Philadelphia, and someone else appears and says, "I am Philadelphia." You know, I guess to show the whatever the diversity of the city or something. But no, but this is a great point. The, uh, this is let, let's stop there for a second. 
because you're leading me into something that's very important to me. When that person says, I'm Philadelphia, and the other person says, I'm Philadelphia. Well, if you look at my cells, the Bill Miller cells, each of them is a part of me. Each of them might say, I am Bill Miller. But the important point is that there's an inherent reciprocality. There's reciprocation from the me that's me back to them. So it, it, although it seems unlikely, it, it is actually a fact. There, every single cell that is me experiences the entirety of me through a vast web of connections. This connectome that I'm saying is, is the way that we really interact with each other. So in, an es- in the essence of it, every single cell of me has a tiny part of me, the entirety of me, because it is the combination of all of those influences that help that individual cell sustain itself. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And it, we're not talking about vast amounts, quantities of transfer information. It's the subtleties and the nuances, but every single one of my cells is, is both an individual and part of me. And, and You're saying that multicellular organisms, what makes a multicellular organism an organism is the emergent properties of the whole of all these individual cells and microbes working together. Yes, absolutely. But with the additional caveat that that all of our my cells are working together for the express purpose of sustaining the self-identity of the individual cell. Every single cell has its own self-identity. It has in its own way. It's not at all like my self-identity because that's an emergent property of trillions and trillions of cells, including those cells that are not even of, of my species, They're the microbes that, that are part of my gut microbiome and are invested in my metabolism, in my moods, in my behaviors, my glucose regulation, and all of those things that together allow me to problem solve as an entire organism. So let me say that there are discrete rules of engagement that permit all this to happen. And that's the, what I like to call the four C's. The C's stand for collaboration cooperation, codependence, and competition, but it's generally mutualizing competition. So in order for for all of my cells to play together nicely so that my pancreas function and my gut lining can can interact with the trillions and trillions of of microbes that are part of my gut microbiome, they have to have rules of engagement to get along with each other. And And the fact that they do, is the fact, that, and yours do too, is the fact that you and I are having this conversation together. So although in standard Darwinism, we talk about competition being the major driver, and of course there's competition at every level, at every ecological level, of course there's competition. But the competition part of it is the tiny fraction of the, of the whole. After all, for a lion to attack a zebra, first the lion has to be a complete holobiont. So does the zebra. So that although you have two whole organisms interacting in, an, in a fiercely competitive mono a mono fashion, but the fact is both of them can only do that because there are endless trillions of other living entities, each with their own self-identity, that are collaborating, cooperating, codependent, and are competing at their own level, but in a highly mutualized way. Well, I mean, at first glance, someone hearing that, I would think, you know, if I'm being cynical, I would say, 
yeah, so what? Of course they all have to work together, otherwise they wouldn't be alive. Like, What deep or interesting insights do you get from thinking about it in this way? What you get is an understanding of how these individual connections and the rules of engagement of those connections couple to the fact that each of your, each of your cells is, is in part the you that's you. And that allows us to understand that we connect with the planet in a way that we had not understood before. Let me explain. So everywhere you go and everything you do, you're leaving your signature. You're leaving an imprint on everything, even though you can't see it. That's because you are shedding billions and billions of cells every day, trillions. And that, and these are skin cells, these are microbes, these are signatures of where you are. How do we know that's true? Well, on, a, on an easy level, bloodhounds can track you. How much, how much of you that is you can, why can they do that? It's, it's because those cells have your particular imprint and to such a powerful degree and, and such profusion that they can track you over a hundred miles for even weeks after you've gone. It's because you, you exist within a, a cloud of cells, both your own cells and microbial cells, and you're leaving them everywhere you go. It's important to understand that beyond the ability of a bloodhound to track you, those cells are participating in the environment in a consequential manner. Those cells are food for other living things. They become automatically part of the planetary cycle. And, and these kinds of connections, cell-to-cell connections, are not just theoretical ones like, why would it matter to me? Because they actually impact your life, every human touch. Every kiss, every form of contact is a transfer from one living person to another with enormous quantities of contacted, influenced life. When a, when a mother breastfeeds her baby, some of the sugars in the breast milk are for the bacteria that live on her nipple and on her real life. They're yeah. not just for the baby. And so that's what modern science is teaching us, that there are these kinds of profound connections and furthermore, we now have the privilege of leveraging an understanding of these connections and exactly how they, they, uh, they spin outward to allow ourselves to become healthier and happier and improve the quality of our lives. Well, one thing I was thinking about while you were talking is if um, cells were just machines and if everything was random, then there would be no common language that would allow them to work together there would be no need for them to work together. Why would they work together? But yet they do. We, obviously, we see that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be alive and functioning for so many years. So that kind of, um, I think that pushes back against, you know, Darwinism, that it doesn't make sense that uh, everything's just machines. Well, that's right. Um, there's, in order for cells to cooperate together, to, to live with the four C's that I'm talking about, collaboration and cooperation, uh, primarily, they're codependent. They have to share information which means they have to measure it together in, in some kind of a valid manner. And then they have to all be able to communicate. So what this again reinforces is the, the intensity of the connections that exist across the planet between every form of life nearly simultaneously. It's really, a, when we talk about the web of life, I don't believe it can be properly understood without bringing it back down to cellular terms. It is that intense. So what, what does that mean? It means that you, you're just not on the planet. You are actually of the planet. You're not just in the environment. You're of the environment. You are, you are not an outside observer looking 
at it. You are part of this connectome, whether you, whether you feel it or not. And, and more surprisingly, because our cells are connected by quantum phenomena, we, we actually connect further. The connections to the planet are easy enough, I think, to understand because I've talked about cells that are shed, the fact that you leave your signature. Um, there's an interesting uh, uh, um, thing from forensics. It's called the principle of Locard. Locard was a French policeman, detective, and he, he came up with the basic principle that underscores all the TV shows that everybody likes to watch, CSI and everything else. He was the first person to realize that any criminal leaves behind something of himself or herself and takes something away from a, from a crime scene. Now, in his terms, he was thinking about fibers. Um, was, this was even before fingerprints, but he was thinking about fibers and hairs, uh, bits of tobacco, tiny bits of clothing, an inadvertent item, uh, a footprint. Now we understand that the principle of Locard can be enlarged. Everywhere I go, I've left evidence of myself. A sophisticated bloodhound, I mean, a bloodhound could find that out. But we're going to be close to the moment where even computer systems will allow us to detect the presence of someone on keyboards for weeks, uh, remotely in a room. Um, this, these, this is how profound these connections are. Because some of these connections, the cellular connections that we're talking about, proceed through quantum phenomena, it permits a very surprising conclusion. And it's based on, on a quantum principle called non-locality. What this means is that when cells communicate with each other, they obviously can do that by touching, vibration, signaling molecules, bioelectric fields. But there's one other way that's being researched and has been validated is the principle of non-locality. It means that for reasons that we cannot quite understand, without touching, without contact with, them, with, with, with one another, cells can send a signal to a distant cell at great distance instantaneously. It doesn't travel by the normal pathways, not like electron transfer from cells. It's the, it's the kind of thing that works like this. If I suddenly decide to raise my arm, I have to simultaneously fire at something like 10 to the 28th power ATP molecules. These are special energy molecules that cells use. And I have to do that over a distance that's really spectacularly long in cellular terms. It's the length of my arm. And yet it can happen simultaneously. And no one has previously explained it before um, some scientists began to invoke the concept of non-locality. It means that, that there is a form of communication that exists at the quantum level that, uh, and some scientists are trying to, to relate this to quantum teleportation, and some experiments initially say that that's actually possible. But what can, what can happen is that one entity, like an electron, can know what another electron is sensing across a trillion miles. I, I know it seems improbable. But this well, is well in in the biological context though what what kind of experimentation has shown that there's this uh communication over a vast distance you know instantly well there at this at the moment it's very hard to conduct that kind of an experiment at the biological level other than the fact that there are certain phenomena that occur in the bodies that no currently known living process can explain except through non locality but we do know further that the concept of non-locality where uh, there's a, there is communication at a, 
incredible distances. That is an actual scientific fact proved by physical experiments through reactors and things like that. Well, what's an example of that, a biological example of an inexplicable, you know, instant communication? Well, exactly what I was saying with, with arm movement, Rich. There's no way to account for the fact that I can coordinate all of the necessary molecular recruitment and muscular recruitment instantaneously through any of the conventional mechanisms that we use. They calculated that out with extreme care. So they've done all the electric conduction sequence you know, calculations and so on. And you simply can't, you can't account for it any other way. How much faster is it than a normal cell communication would allow? Um, an order of magnitude, meaning okay, well. 100 times faster. So that's, that's one way that we connect outwards into the cosmos, which is, a, which is physically possible based on basic cellular physics. But there's another way that I like to talk about because it just interests me so much. Because of our cleverness as humans, we have determined that we are going to send life out into space. We didn't mean, I mean, we sent astronauts out into space. But what we've also been doing without thinking it through very clearly is sending out cells. And the thing about cells is certain kinds of cells are incredibly hardy. So NASA back in the 1970s had these um, vaunted clean rooms. These were rooms in which they scrubbed everything carefully. They tested the surfaces of spacecraft very carefully. They cultured to make sure that there were no micro, my, uh, types of microbial contamination. And they declared that these craft were sterile. Um, and they did a good job. They were trying to do a very careful job. There was only one problem. The technology at the time was insufficient to, to really send out sterile craft. They were loaded with microbes. The problem was that the regular culture technique where they go to these agar plates, and I don't, you may have seen the video where they smear the plates and they wait for mm -hmm. the cultures, that's wildly inaccurate. Fewer than 10% of the total microbes that exist will show up. And of course, viruses don't. And some people believe viruses are alive. So as it turns out, uh, spacecraft like the Explorer 1 and 2, they, they were sent out to go past the planets. And now they are even extending out past the heliosphere. The heliosphere is the, the margin of the influence, the direct influence of the sun. And when you, when you leave that, you're really finally out of the solar system. And these are, these are billions and billions of miles. But we do know that those craft have microbial companions. We know also that some cells are incredibly hardy. For example, these there are these uh, small little tiny creatures called water bears, they're called tardigrades. And that we know that they hitchhike on all spacecraft. We also know that they are ferocious survivors. The radiation that would kill us doesn't bother them. Dehydration, they go into a spore state, which they can keep, the estimate is tens of thousands of years. Uh, it is even conceivable that certain microbes and spore states can live, can re-germinate after millions of years. So we've become inadvertent agents of what's termed panspermia. Uh, panspermia is the theory that the origin of life on this planet is from outer to us, that it arrived with a comet or an asteroid, and it happened to hit a, a, a fertile place where that life could germinate. And then evolution took its course. And that's how we, we came. Of course, that doesn't solve the problem of the origin of life. It just puts it someplace else. Well, what's the implication of that? Like on the moon, 
I, you know, it's disgusting, but I guess there's bags of poop from the, the astronauts sitting there. You know, I don't know if things are alive in there, if they could be reconstituted, if they were brought back or, you know, stuff attached to Voyager 1, let's say. But what's so what if it's going out into the universe? What what would happen? It means that we are um, we are inadvertently sending out forms of life that can potentially be uh, destructive to other life forms if there are any out there. It's um, these kinds of. So in our terms, one of the uh, problems is what we term zoonotic infections. These are infections that skip from one animal to another or from a plant to an animal and so on. These are very deadly occurrences for populations of animals of all kinds. Uh, We've become an invasive species. We didn't mean to be. And it may not be negative because maybe there is no other life out there. But the problem becomes that if there is life out somewhere else, then we are potentially being very harmful to it. Um, will it have ultimate consequence? Well, that depends on whether or not we're the only life in, in, in the universe. Most scientists that uh, that study this problem regard that as completely improbable, and no one knows. But, but, but what if we find life on Mars or the Moon or wherever, and it's actually came from us, and well, we're like, we, oh, look, it looks just like us, but it was our seed that caused it. But Rich, that's a great point. That's exactly the point. We will find life on Mars. As we get more and more sensitive experimentation, and as we land more craft there, ultimately we'll find life. And guess what? It'll be, we'll have to put it there. It will be almost impossible to know that it is uh, alien because we are still very early in, dis- in discerning all the forms of life there are. It is easy to presume that we have the catalogs of all the viruses and all the bacteria that are out there, but we don't. We have only a fraction of it. So inevitably, someone's going to find sometime in the next decade or so, some kind of a sample in which they're going to say, oh my goodness, there's a spore or there's a genetic particle. And the probability is nearly 100% that it came from us and not pre-existing. We know that there's life on Mars now because we've put it there. We know there's life on the moon. And now we're sending it out into deep space. And let me say, it, maybe it is the right thing in the end. What I'm, what I'm concerned about is that we're doing it without a debate. We should be at least thinking this through very carefully because of the potential for harm that exists. And, and from this, these are part of these connections that I'm talking about, Rich. The connections that we have from our intelligent cells, and by the way, every single cell that we've sent out, if it's alive, it is intelligent. It means it's problem solving. And that means that it it can adapt to extreme circumstances on other planets in ways that humans, even though we're terrific problem solvers, will never. The the chance of our actually colonizing Mars is basically as close to zero as you can get. Why do you why do you think that? Because we are we are not as a total organism capable of withstanding the high density radiation effects. We are not suited to uh nearly absent gravity. Too many of our processes, our cellular processes are, are dependent on gravity. We know that from experiments in microgravity. We know that from the space station. We know that prolonged exposure to, to even the space station itself, which is not deep, deep, deep space, it's very protected space, has measurable harmful effects. There's rapid aging. There are, are There's rapid uh, cardiovascular deterioration. It's not a benign experience, and that's just close to home. If you if you go to Mars, which is a year out, 
and then you're going to stay there for a while and a year back, uh, the cumulative radiation dose will kill you. Do you think a, a single cell would be more likely to survive this? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly uh, the point. The, it, won't be, it wouldn't be a single cell of our type, my Bill Miller personal cell, but there's a microbe that's part of me too that could be placed, an extremophile microbe, could, that could be placed into that kind of a extreme set of conditions, and it would do fine. It would go into a spore state, it would shut down its metabolism, and it would survive everything until that proper moment. And again, it is, per, it is natural for us to think about our lifespan. Of course, what else would we do? But when you're talking about microbes and spore states, as I was saying, their lifespans in, in a sports state can go on for, well, no one actually knows, at least 10,000 years at a moment. So yeah. it is a, we, we have, if we, even if there was not quantum non-locality, though there is, which connects us across the universe in ways that we will ultimately much better understand, irrespective of that, we have a cosmic connection because we've, we have inadvertently chosen to send life out into space. Now we've become agents of panspermia. And, and so what should we derive from that? Our connections, our cellular connections that privilege us to be the special kinds of beings that we are, impel us to be proper planetary stewards because we are not just in the environment, we're of it. We, are, we create the environment just by, our, just by the way we live. And we have a cosmic stewardship, microbes in space. What, is, what, what should we be doing? How should we prepare crafts to leave this planet? There are people that think about it, but it gets relatively little, relatively little attention. But there are some more living lessons. I, I know we don't have that much more time. I think it's important for people to understand that no matter what our ego is about, our, about ourselves, microbes rule this planet. They, they are the perpetual survivors. And if we ever exterminate ourselves, microbes will still be there. I think it's important to realize that cognition and creativity are universal. Every animal, every cell, every plant, every single living thing intelligent in its own way. There are no stupid animals. I think that it's that there are lessons from the, the four C's of collaboration, cooperation, codependence, and competition that would serve us in trying to understand our own politics, our own economics, and our own societal norms. I think it. I think it could underscore a, a one kind of approach. One kind of approach toward human ethics. Well, what are, what are some explicit examples of what what these four C's can teach us? Like, if you were you know to entertain a young young kid, I don't know, ten, twelve years old, and you were his teacher or her teacher, and what, what would you hope to impart to them as a student? What again, nothing you mean, but why do they care? How is this going to change their life? It would. What what we could do is. To make it plain that successful, a, a successful individual life and successful societal collective life has to be underscored by those four principles. So if you're doing, if you are acting in a way where you ask yourself, am I being collaborative? Am I being cooperative? Am I accepting that there's a codependent linkage with others? And if I'm being competitive, am I doing it in a manner that is mutualizing, that there's an opportunity for both sides to interact productively from that competition, which is the way we generally en engineer a city or anything else like that. Well, that's a constructive way to live as a human being. Furthermore, 
And a really important point is the reasons that those four C's exist, those forms of cellular cell-cell interactions exist, is for a very, very important principle. Each cell is serving others, and each cell is being served by others. The lesson from that, that our society could adopt as, as its universal norm, is that we serve ourselves best by serving others. It isn't cutthroat survival of the fittest. It is, it is that a life of service to others is the only way to live properly. That, and, and doing that, you can become a constructive co-engineer with other people in society. And the thing that you can teach is that you that although you may feel believe that ferocious competition is your only means of getting ahead, that's incorrect. That's self-destructive. The proper pathway is through serving others because that is your way. That is the way you serve yourself. So should we get a t-shirt, WWCD? Like what would cells do? I love that. Let's, let me offer one other quick thought. There's a terrific opportunity from this new understanding about the base of our living circumstance is intelligent cells and the rules by which they live together, the rules of engagement, that we can partner with them in a very productive manner. Some of these bioengineering processes have begun, but there's, there's a, a place that we can take them that is only beginning to be explored. And what I'd like to bring up is, is a, the principle of salutogenesis. It's, it is the idea that human health, individual health should be explored on the basis of each individual person. It's no longer one size fits all. So if I go to my internet example, he's gonna look at my age and my height and talk about my weight. And then he'll look at my blood glucose level, my fasting blood glucose, and he'll look at my lipids. And what is he going to do? He's gonna tell me what the general right thing to do for people like me, not as a specific individual, but as a person, member of a class. The class of individuals of my age with my lipids and so on. So I'll get the standard medications or the standard advice. Here's an opportunity, though, because of the creativity of ourselves combined with our own creativity. What we can do is devise a manner in which advice is extremely personalized. Medical advice is personalized, but more particularly, it's formulated for you to be the best you. So, for example... There can be an individual whose blood pressure is a little higher than the normative value, and his fasting blood glucose is a little bit higher than normal, but his lipids are fine, and it turns out that his gut microbiome is of a particular type that is known to be associated with longevity. So, for example, there's a, a new paper that's just out in Nature Metabolism, and it discusses the microbiome in healthy aging adults. And they found out that the microbiome of healthy aging adults doesn't conform to a particular type. In fact, it skews fairly remarkably. But despite the fact that the, the, the microbial components, the participants are there, their metabolic outcomes are directed towards the production of certain key amino acid components along just a couple of metabolic pathways, a phenylalanine tyrosine pathway, and uh, a tryptophan indole pathway. And that those particular chemicals, when they're produced by a gut microbiome, are signatures of healthy longevity. So this is an opportunity for the principle of salutogenesis to be at work. 
if you have that gut microbiome, maybe we shouldn't be doing anything about your fasting blood glucose. Maybe we should just leave it alone and let you do what you want to do. It's a completely different paradigm of lifelong health. So it's individualized well-being. It's, it's the opportunity to tailor things to you. And you can't do that without basic science research into the, into the complexities of our cells, and most particularly approaching it from the proper framework of how intelligent cells co-partner and co-engineer. And I believe that if we could harness that, the end result would be a, a completely new era of health compared to the past. Well, what if I embraced this and I said, all right, cells are my teachers. What do I do now? What, what, what can I learn from them? Or what rule, what learnings are right there in our face that we're ignoring, let's say, because of our, you know, our paradigm? Well, first of all, I think people can take comfort from knowing that there is an actual purpose in their lives. That purpose may not be, may not be exactly the ones that you thought there were, but you're not here today and gone tomorrow. And many people find themselves almost lost at sea, feeling that there's just no continuity. They're, They've come and they've gone and they've had no permanent place on this planet or in the universe. Why did I even exist? And the answer, I think, can be profoundly comforting to some people. You have but but what, what is that answer? What is the purpose? You're like, okay, if I die, wonderful. My cells will, you know, they've been, they've been identified with me. They have a unique signature. Now they go off into the environment. I would guess most people just assume they all die and that's the end of you, but if they don't die, if they become food for other creatures, again, like, well, that's wonderful. But beyond being food for like earthworms or, or who knows what, I mean, what, again, what's the point of it? Why is that comforting? Well, I, for me, I, I love the fact that I, I have a role in, in, in a miraculous planetary and cosmic continuum. I, I think that's important to me. I believe that I have a purpose because there's how I live my life is part of, of planetary stewardship. I believe that uh, understanding that because of the of what I can learn from cellular rules, I learn how to be a better co-participant with individuals. I learn that I that it is important for me to serve others and also to be served to be, to allow myself to be served. I also know that I can look and keep abreast of advances in research into the gut microbiome, and that I can take my health into my own hands to some degree by looking into those things that, that productively adjust the gut microbiome like probiotics and uh, prebiotics. And so I'm, I can become a productive partner of my own health. What if, what if you're one of those people that has a, you know, a big ego? I mean, I guess, first of all, you probably wouldn't be willing to listen, but where does ego come into play in terms of your cellular learnings? Well, the ego is a very interesting aspect. Uh, it's a terrific question because what do you learn from cells? You need to put ego aside as much as you can. Cells don't have egos. The reason why cells perpetually survive across the planet and the reason that cells will remain billions of years from now on this planet, even when we've come and gone as a species, that particular reason is they don't have an ego. They learn how to play well together. We learn further that in Darwinism, the concept is that the survival of the fittest is what propels evolutionary development. But that's not correct. The actual factors that propel, that propel evolutionary development are those people that are, are those cells that play together well, that measure together well, that communicate together well, that co-engineer together with facility. That's what's being selected, not outcomes, but connections and process. Again, 
biology has been harmed by, not harmed, it couldn't know better up until very recently. Thinking of it as things, observing things, things in environmental landscapes. But now we can get beyond it. Now we can look at the vast hidden connections that are there, whether you sense them or not. And those are the things that actually govern your life. And you have an opportunity to embrace these things into your personal philosophy, that, you're, that you are consequential, that you matter, that you've, that you've had a role in the trajectory of the planet. You actually have a role in the trajectory of the cosmos now. And that it is, I believe, a message that's fulfilling compared to, well, I was here and now I'm gone and I was a selfish kind of person. Uh, no, you need to subtract the ego out of it. It's interesting that this, this does certainly reverberate with some of the Eastern philosophies, but this is not spiritualism. This is basic science. And if it, if it overlaps certain spiritual values, then wonderful. I'm happy for that. But that's not my, my purpose is for people to understand that there are basic biological reasons for, for them to do, for them to act in a certain way. Well, I've been hard on you, but you know, I, I do agree with what you're saying. You know, my wish is that if science would just embrace that, you know, cells at least have some form of intelligence that they can engineer, that they're doing all these things you say, then science itself would be very different. It would be contemplated very differently. Experimentation would change. It wouldn't be as reductionist and on and on. Well, I think that they're an outcry, but I agree with that entirely. But I also know that in order for productive research to spill outwards, it has to begin from within a useful framework. It, it, needs, it needs to have the proper theoretical background, or it needs to be grounded in the correct basic science for the next step. So from my point of view, everything that we're talking about here is true. It is objectively true, but it's also still a way station to the next higher level of knowledge. But in order to get to the next level, you have to accept that these connections exist so that you know how to frame your experiments properly and know how to interpret the results in, a, in the correct manner. Well, what's an example? Tell me of a few large areas of inquiry that attract, you know, billions to study them. And, you know, just give me a couple examples. What's reductionist? What would be different under your paradigm? Okay, so one example would be to use the power of computer power to explore the vast trove of microbes that are in the gut and explore them for discrete metabolic parameters and then conduct a series of experiments in which those metabolic parameters are heightened by judicious use of probiotics, prebiotics, new means of cell-cell communication. They could, they could even come up with new ways of promoting the production from gut microbes of highly useful metabolic products. And that would be a good way of determining, of helping people with most of the metabolic problems that we have today. It would be very helpful for, for mood disorders and depression, which we know links to the gut microbiome. We don't understand those linkages yet, but we could use the power of understanding how microbes co-engineer based on the principles, the four C's that I've mentioned, how those rules of engagement can be, can be better understood to bioengineer products for healthy living and enhance well-being. I think it's extremely easy. It's not easy to do, but now for the first time ever, it's practical. We have the tools. We have metagenomic sequencing that can allow us to, to determine 
all sorts of novel microorganisms that we didn't understand. We have an almost entirely unexplained virome. And I can assure you, I mean, it's beyond the scope of our talking today, but the virome is the vital communication mechanism between cells. Those are part of these hidden connections. So we're only at the first level of understanding what we possibly could know to make ourselves live longer, healthier, happier lives. But we can't do that without understanding that the way that cells get along with each other. And that was only available now to us in the last two, two decades. And fundamental to that is realizing that the basic cell is intelligent, the basic cell is a problem solving and that it is part that it is the reason that cells are long-term survivors is that their self-integrity is protected. It's respected by the whole. So let's just say, what, what would we learn from cells that would help us politically? Well, we can look at any of our political disagreements and examine them on the principle of, are you respecting the self-integrity of every individual in that society? Or are you making rules where their self-integrity is compromised? The purpose of cells getting along together through cooperation, collaboration, and competition, the cellular decision, the cellular solution to this, which has been tested for 3.8 billion years and is successful, is the first principle is the respect for self-identity. The point that every cell uh, the the background architecture, I wanted to rephrase it, the background architecture of every cellular interactome, the, the basic underlying principle is that cells are protected. The reason that they gather together is they protect themselves best by, by being in the collaborative whole. In many political circumstances, the concept is you have to subordinate yourself to the collective. That's not what cells are doing. Cells are serving, but they are being served. They're, sometimes cells will unilaterally sacrifice themselves. Again, that's beyond the scope here. And it's a, it's a process called apoptosis. But there are self-sacrificing cells that explain self-sacrifice in the animal world and even in humans. But primarily, cells are respected within their environment. That's the rules of engagement. All the rules of engagement are devoted to making sure that the integrity of the individual cell is upheld. So does where, this, where, you know, uh, are the rules in the genes? <laughs> where, where do you think these rules are? Where is this knowledge and this, this desire or this tropism towards, towards the four C's? Where does it exist? Well, it just, it, it's a terrific question. It exists everywhere within the cell. One of the interesting things that you learn from understanding the cellular connections that I'm talking about is that our former gene-centric model, in which the genes are in control of everything, is simply not true. Once you understand that cells are cognitive, that they're intelligent, that they're problem solving as a whole, you realize that every part of the cell participates in. So yes, genes are very important. Of course, they're critically important. It's obvious that they are a crucial aspect towards reproduction and heritable memory. But genes, DNA outside of a cell is inert. It has no function. It's only in the context of the cell that DNA acquires the capacity to do its job. So the lesson of cells is that even within the cell itself, it is a tiny little microcosm of these very same principles that we're talking about, that the inside of a cell is its own ecology, and it is working together in an unbelievably complicated manner. Uh, parts of the eukaryotic cell, the type of cells that make you and me, our personal cells, um, part of them are 
remnants of bacterial forms that are that are part and partial of the heredity of the cell and the energy functioning of the cell. Everything has to work together in a seamless entirety just to make the cell. Then that gets reproduced layer after layer, trillions upon trillions to make us. So it's all in these connections. Yeah, it's amazing. If, if you were to have a scorecard of, you know, humankind versus other creatures, you know, how good or bad are we at uh, adhering to the four C's versus other creatures and versus, you know, any, yeah, versus any other creature, animal or bacteria or plant or whatever? It's a, it's a wonderful question. I, I really like humans. I think we're terrible and wonderful. I think we're very privileged, but I think we, we make a terrible error. And we are, we are, let, uh, let me answer this. There's a vast arena of improvement, which we should undertake, which is another one of the principles that I think extend from the lessons that cells teach us. Every cell is intelligent. Every life form is intelligent. I think that we've been very cavalier in what we think about other living things, even plants. If you said to people that plants have feelings, that plants have intelligence, they'd look at you like you're crazy, but they do. Plants are very intelligent. So let's, let's look at it this way. In the Victorian era, only humans were considered to have mind. They were, only, they were actually the only conscious beings on the planet. No other animal had a mind. Every animal was a robot. They dealt through reflex, through plants, through tropisms. They responded to stimuli in an unthinking manner. Now, in our modern era, what dog owner doesn't think that his dog or her dog is intelligent? We, so we've changed our minds about that. Well, now we have another leap forward to go right now. Cells teach us that every single living thing is intelligent in its own way. That intelligence, importantly, does not have to match our own. It can be entirely disconnected from it. In fact, it, the concept of mind, where does mind exist? We think of it as brain-centered. That's very incomplete. If you look at um, cephalopods, their mind is distributed. They, their, their tentacles each have their own minds, as it were. They have, they have the separate capacity to problem solve distributed in an entirely different manner from us. So what is a, is a cuttlefish smart? You bet it is. But in its own manner, is an amoeba smart? Yes, it's capable of problem solving within its realm. This is an opportunity for us to very clearly rethink how we deal with the other living realms. And I think it upholds the principle that we have a, a job to do in planetary stewardship. It, it means that we have to approach it in, in a much more enlightened manner. Okay. What do you think, what kind of experimentation do you think needs to be done or changed that will shed some early light on this and generate some belief in it so that more can be done and things can move in that direction? Because it seems well, like this is a better way to experiment than what's going on right now. Well, I think that the, the impetus should be in just a few discrete directions with respect to the, the things that I'm talking about. Many of these ideas will be summarized in uh, something I'll be putting out called Bioverse. But what would Bioverse want to be experimented upon? It would want to be able to see intense research on the fundamental capacities of cells. I think that there should be a very deep exploration of the mysteries of consciousness and cognition, starting at the level of the basic cell. I know that human cognition is a subject of, of intense research, but I think we should be experimenting very carefully at, at, the, at the basic science level of the cell, because I believe that that's the only way you will understand our type of more brain-centered cognition. We, I would love to see much more 
clever, I would love to see clever experiments on the principle of non-locality. At the moment, it, it is absolutely known to exist at the level of physicists, at the level of electrons. We know that it exists, or at least it must exist by default because of the unexplained biological interactions that I mentioned, but I'd love to see deep research. And I think if, if those things occurred along with the, the research into the principles of salutogenesis, where we start to, to have, uh, we devise means of thoroughly evaluating each individual as an individual so that their well-being can be carefully tailored to their uniqueness, their cellular uniqueness. I think that's very important. And um, you mentioned Bioverse. I don't know how much you want to say or not say about it, but what what resources other than that do you have for listeners so they could find out more about your perspective and learn from it? Well, I actually have put together a a website. It's uh, ourbioverse.com. And uh, I have a Twitter feed that is just science, no politics and no opinions, uh, at Bill Miller, MD. And I'd welcome people to take a look at that. Okay. Well, very good, Bill. Thanks for coming back onto the podcast, and I hope to see you many more times on it. So thanks again. Thanks, Rich. I enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.